Do you ever have one of those uh, uh, moments when you come across some sort of inane website and then like 45 minutes later, you're, you're like, what have I been doing for the last 45 minutes? I, I, uh, I had um, that experience this week. Somebody told me about this website that is uh, called Spin Bill Gates Money. Um, and it's, it's, there's no real point to it. I brought a, a picture of it, but it starts with the tally of $90 billion, which just for the record is actually a little bit low. He's estimated to be closer to one, uh, $107 billion. So we're playing it safe here. Um, and then you go through a series of things and it starts with kind of like relatively trivial sorts of things. Um, like Big Macs and video games and, and headphones and all that sort of stuff. And just a word to the wise, like don't, don't spend your time on this part of the website because it really takes a long time to spend $90 billion on Big Macs. Um, and then it gets into more exotic things, right? Like high-end sports cars and we can buy like a bar of gold for half a million dollars. And and even here, stuff is kind of like, it almost feels like it's not affecting the bottom line really at all. And then it just gets to the ludicrous, right? It moves to like, you can buy the Mona Lisa for $780 million, or you can buy some professional sports teams for $2.3 billion. In the case of an NFL team, it's the average value of a team. So just, just for... Uh, example here. I put in, we bought all 32 NFL teams and we still have $16 billion left to spend, right? Like you can go add on the Mona Lisa and you're not even going to feel it at this point in time. And of course, this website is, is, is just for fun. It's just to kind of like imagine what it would be like, but it does it does evoke in me anyways, probably in many of us, that sort of like, what would it be like? Like, who lives like this? Who, who wields that level of ability and power and influence and surplus? And, and I, I mean, obviously, I guess Bill Gates does. But, but we wonder, like, what would that be like? And I want you to, I want you to retain that sense of um, almost awe if you will, like mind-blowing sort of as we think about this psalm that we're going to read today. Because David begins this psalm in this incredible worship to his God by saying, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, right? Including Bill Gates, he owns a lot of stuff, but who owns him? David would argue that God does. And he owns you and I as well. See, if you're new with us today, uh, again, welcome. It's good to have you. We are about halfway through a series that we've been doing in the, in the Psalms. And we have been looking at a variety of different Psalms and the way that these ancient Hebrew poems provide a language or a model for how we bring our honest thoughts and feelings and emotions to our God in every season of life. And this week we're exploring Psalm 24, what we're kind of titling as a song of, of glory. And so if you have your Bibles, we can turn there. This is again another Psalm that's written by David. I'm going to read through it 
and then we'll, we'll kind of stop and process a bit of what David writes here. This is Psalm 24. David says this, he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god? They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Now, the very first thing that strikes me as we read this, this psalm is just, if you, if you were with us over the last couple of weeks, just how different it sounds than the lament psalms that we have studied for previously. Like David is, is obviously in a very different place here relationally with God as he describes him as the king of glory which just kind of is a, a point of interest, that, that title, King of Glory, that is only used of God here in this psalm. There's, there's, the, the, there's other passages that talk about the glory of God or the God of glory, but this title of King of Glory is only used here by David. And so what I would like to do, I, I wanna just kind of process what David is describing to us, and I wanna do so through some of the questions that David asks here in this psalm, beginning with that question, that refrain that comes up at the end of the song, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? Every, every once in a while in the Moore house, um, a disagreement will break out on, on what is going to, what we're going to have or watch on TV on a, on a certain night. And I have three daughters and they're not always in perfect alignment with their entertainment preferences. And so every once in a while, I'll, I'll hear a, a fight going on and whatever. And if I'm not, if I don't care about it, then I try to ignore it and, you know, and let them figure it out on their own. That's great parenting. And, <laughs> but if I have a vested interest, right, if, the, if, if, if there's something that I want to watch, if the Ohio State game is, is about to get started, then every once in a while I'm forced to extend uh, or to exert what I would call owner's rights, right? That I have to remind my daughters that I bought the TV, that I am the one who pays the cable bill every month, that the couch that they would like to sit on to watch whatever they want to watch, I own it. And the house that they reside in, technically it's owned by the bank, but I pay the mortgage, <laughs> right? Like, I, I have to remind them that, that ultimately, despite their compelling arguments about whatever they want to watch or see, I get to decide what is going to be on the TV because I own it. Because it's mine, it belongs to me, right? Unless Sherry comes in 
to the picture. That changes things in the power structure. But, but because I own it. David, David in this psalm is clarifying some things at the very outset. And he does so by first establishing that God has owner's rights. Yahweh has owner's rights. He, he, we'll talk a little bit more about the context from which David writes this psalm in just a bit. But, but scholars and, and theologians believe that, that this psalm is written in a season of David's life when he is very early in his reign as king of Israel. It, it's a season of life for him with his own sense of power and resource. What is at his disposal is increasing. And in the midst of that, even in the awareness of that, David recognizes and acknowledges that it isn't his, that it, that it ultimately doesn't belong to him. In fact, I, I think David is being even a bit more bold than that because David is, is surrounded by cultures and by kingdoms that, that hold to these these polytheistic ideas of gods and these, these kings that are battling and warring for power and influence and significance. And David is saying, not only does it not belong to me, he's, he's saying it doesn't belong to you either, right? It, it, this is, it belongs to Yahweh. When David writes, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, he's not using the generic term for Lord. He, he's using the very, name of God. This belongs to Yahweh. In fact, later in the psalm, he refers specifically to the God of Jacob. It belongs to him. And he is, he's comprehensive here. He, he's saying it's all his, everything in it, including the people who live in it. So he establishes that God has owner's rights. But he also bases this in, or he establishes it in that God has creator's rights. He has creator's rights. He bases the idea of his ownership, Yahweh's ownership of it, in the fact that he created it. Why is it his? Because he made it, right? Have you ever, did your mom ever say anything to you? Like, I, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it? Yeah? That, that's, that's creator's rights, like... He writes, David writes in, in verse two, he says, for he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. David, at the very outset of this psalm, he is establishing something that really is critical to our understanding the whole context of what David is, is doing here. And he is, the, the, he is setting God apart. In, in terms of all the other ideas of God that would have surrounded him and, and culture in the world at the time. And in terms even of our own understanding, he is establishing, he's setting Yahweh apart from all other gods. In, in doing so, he is, he is setting him aside as the great and sovereign God. He is, he is placing all authority and control in him because he owns it and because he created it. See, the, 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 the driving factor in David's opening stanza of this poem is that the king of glory has rightful claim over all creation, including your life. Let me say that again. The, the king of glory has a rightful claim over all of creation, including your life. Because he owns it. Because he created it. 
See, at the outset of this poem, David begins by, by setting God apart. And to say that God has been set apart is to say that he is holy. That he is holy, which leads us to this second question then. And David, again, pretty overtly asked this in the poem, but who can approach the king of glory? Who can approach the king of glory? Back in verse 3, David writes this. He says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. I, uh, um, do you, I'm sure you've experienced this too, moments when you get in the middle of something and then recognize that, that you have overestimated your ability. Um, there's many of you maybe are familiar with uh, Pinterest online, right? And there's all these beautiful depictions of crafts and, and, and food creations and home projects that people do. And there'll be blogs explaining how you're supposed to do this. And if you look this up, you can, you can look up Pinterest fails because people will show you their efforts to recreate something that they saw online and how it turned out in reality, Right? My experience with this has a little bit more to do with YouTube. Um, a, a few weeks ago, one of our, our cars was, it wasn't warming up correctly. And so I did a little research and realized that the thermostat needed to be changed. And I was like, I can do this. And YouTube is a, is a fascinating place because people record almost everything and, and put it on YouTube. And so I was able to find like the exact model of car that, that I owned and, and instructions that somebody was showing on how to change the thermostat. And it looked very doable, right? It looked like something and it took, um, the, the video was 15 minutes long. So being modest and, and trying to, I don't do this. I was like, okay, I'll give myself half an hour here, right? And like four hours later, like the, the family's all asleep. Like I'm in the garage, like trying not to cry. There's like coolant leaking like everywhere. And, and, and you get to the moment, the recognition that you are in over your head, that, that, that you're not qualified to do this, right? And I don't have what it takes to get the job done. David, David here begins this psalm by setting God apart. He, he establishes him as, as different, unique than, than all else in creation. Everything else that exists. And he says then, in light of that, in our awareness and understanding of that, who is qualified, who has what it takes to come into your presence? To put it in David's words, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who, who can stand in his holy place? I mentioned earlier a little bit about the, the context of, of this psalm. That it was early on in David's reign as the king of Israel when he was establishing Jerusalem as the, the capital city of, of his kingdom. And it's in a season when, when David's power is, is growing. And so as a part of his desire to, 
to set up Israel as a nation and for the kingdom, for Jerusalem to be the capital city, he desires to bring the Ark of the Covenant to reside in Jerusalem. And, and so if you imagine this, some people talk about Psalm 24 as an entrance liturgy. They, they believe the occasion for which this was written was, was David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And so if you imagine sort of a, a parade, the people of Israel surrounding the route as the Ark of the Covenant is coming into the city, and it almost has this priestly back and forth as they ask these questions and answer these questions back and forth. And there's celebration and joy as God's presence is residing with the people. But, but David's first attempt at this did not go so well. In fact, if you read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you see the story of when David went and, and went to get the Ark of the Covenant and he took a, a cart down and uh, was pulled by oxen and he had some priests who were there overseeing the process and he's sort of expediting the whole thing. And as they're making their way back, the the oxen stumble and the cart shifts and the Ark of the Covenant begins to lean and a priest by the name of Uzzah reaches out his hand to study the Ark of the Covenant and drops over dead instantly when he touches it. Imagine that scene. Like David stops everything. He, he even um, is, is at a loss of what to do. He takes the Ark of the Covenant and, and they leave it there at a man's house named Obed-Edom, right? How would you like to be that guy? Like, hey, this, this guy just touched this and he's dead now. We're gonna just leave this here at your place for a while if that's cool, right? And David, if you read 2 Samuel chapter six, he, David's angry. Like in his mind, he's like, I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do a good thing here. But what he, becomes, what he comes to recognize and realize is that he was trying to do a good thing on his own terms rather than the, according to the instructions that God had given on how the Ark of the Covenant was to be treated, how it was to be transported. He did not follow God's design and the results were devastating. Right? The, the holiness of God is a wonderful and terrifying thing. The holiness of God is, 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 is we are completely dependent upon his holiness because it's, it's his holiness that informs his faithfulness, right? It, it's his holiness that, that allows us to depend on his promises. It's the reason that we can trust him because in his holiness, he cannot and will not violate his own character. But his holiness also means that we don't set the terms that he does, right? On a side note here, when we live on this side of the cross, oftentimes I think that the, the holiness of God can be a, a neglected truth that we sometimes don't forget. But the fact is that if we, if we fail to understand what it means for God to be holy, then we will never fully grasp what it means to need the cross. It's his holiness that ultimately resulted in, in his sacrifice. So now David writes this psalm, this expression of praise, because he goes back to get the Ark of the Covenant, and this time they are doing this according to God's instruction in his 
design. And his awareness, his understanding of the holiness of God is, is illumined. And so he writes this question, who can stand in his holy place, and then answers it by saying, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God, David recognizes and understands that we don't just bring our lives to God, bring our agenda to him, and say, God, will you bless this? Saying that's, that's not how this works. Right? David describes someone here who is externally clean, clean hands, who, who, whose behavior, whose life is aligned with, with God's intention and direction and design. But in addition to that, he also describes somebody who is internally clean, where the desires, a pure heart, the motivation that drives their behavior, that, that is also in alignment with God's design. And then he talks about one whose worship is fully and solely entirely towards him, whose understanding of truth is defined by him. So look here, David is acknowledging in this moment that this is the moment when he comes to the realization that he isn't qualified, that, that he isn't the one who sets the rules and neither are we. Which leads us ultimately to this, this culminating stanza here of this poem. The reason that dis, despite the fact that David has come to the conclusion that, that he's woefully unqualified, David is celebrating. So this third question, how will the king of glory come? How will the king of glory come? I want to look at this last stanza of this poem. Verse 7 Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, the king, this king of glory? The Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. Here is David's conclusion. This, this is why David is, is moved to worship here because he understands, he recognizes that ultimately it is the king of glory who wins the victory. Right? David has not somehow gone on to live perfectly enough, to have pure hands and a clean heart, to have every element, aspect of his worship entirely and wholly devoted to God. He's not, he's not somehow gone on to qualify himself, but rather praises and worships because it is the king of glory who has come to him. It's the king of glory who's made his way to him. Right? And David... He's got the context of what is, is transpiring right in front of him. He is celebrating and acknowledging the fact that, that the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God is coming to dwell with the people, and that's only possible because God has made a way through his Levitical law. That now David understands when I, when I do it his way, God has made a way to dwell with his people. But I believe David is, is, is doing more than that. I believe that he is pointing us to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the, the, the famous English 
preacher and pastor said this. He said, the eye of the psalmist looked, however, beyond the typical upgoing of the ark to the sublime ascension of the king of glory. See, this psalm, David's psalm, is celebrating God's ultimate victory because the king of glory has come to us. The author of of Hebrews chapter 4 describes for us um, Jesus as the great high priest. This is in uh, Hebrews 4, verse 14. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Listen to verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, the author of Hebrews is is understanding, helping us understand that it is the king of glory who is also our great high priest. That, That God, despite our imperfection, has made a way to come to us so that we might dwell in his presence. And for this, David celebrates. The apostle John, when he is recounting a vision that God has given to him in the book of Revelation about how the story of God's redemptive work is going to wrap up, describes it this way in in Revelation chapter 21. In verse three, John describes this vision and he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. John is saying this is, The way that this redemptive work of God ends is just like it started. Like it's a God in the garden dwelling with his people who are uninhibited by by sin or shame or guilt by any of that. And how is it done? How did we find ourselves here? How is this accomplished? Because the king of glory came to us because he became one of us in order to make a way for us to be present with him. See, the king of glory, he comes to us and he comes as our king. Several years ago, and I've, I've told this story before, but I um, was, was at church and um, I recognized that somebody was in the, in the back and was new, I didn't see them before, and just sort of looked like they were maybe a bit confused or uncertain of what was going on. And so I, I came up to introduce myself and greet them. And, um, and as soon as I got there, I, I could tell something was a bit off. And um, as I got closer, I could smell the alcohol on him. And, and it was, he was emotional and he was sort of watching what was taking place in the room. And 
he just sort of whispered, he said, you know, someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself cleaned up so I can come be a part of this. And I was like, friend, that's not what's going on here. This isn't a group of people who've got themselves cleaned up so that we can be a part of this. This is a group of people who have understood that God has come to us. We didn't clean ourselves up. His presence came to us so that we could be clean. And he does the same for you. He's accomplished the same for you. The king of glory has come to us. We're not a group of people who got their act together so that God would let us in. In fact, I told him, I said, look, you're going to fit in swimmingly here, right? Because we're, we're, just, we're sinners saved by grace, trying to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus in apprenticeship to him. Come, come join us in it. David, at the end of this stanza, he celebrates. At the end of this poem, he, he celebrates. He says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up you ancient doors, the, the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, the king of glory? He's the Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again um, for David's just overt celebration of what you have done on our behalf. The fact that you own it all, that you are in authority over all of it, that you are set apart over all else. And, And that we, in our own limitations, are unable to get to you, and so you made a way to come to us. Of course, Lord, we this is... This is the good news. This is the gospel. And we celebrate this invitation that David extends as he worships you. We lift up our heads. We open up the doors that the king of glory may come in. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.